This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Royal Blue Podcast. My name is Joe Thomas. I'm the Echoes Everton FC correspondent. I'm joined here by my colleagues, Paul Wheelock and Conor O'Neill, and longtime contributor to the show, Gavin Buckland. There's only one place to start, and that's obviously with the transfer window. And the first thing I have to do is probably put my hands up slightly because I know we were speaking as recently as, as Monday when I said that I thought that Everton would get two, maybe three signings in. And I must admit, I did think that they probably would do. Partly because, and I know other people here know this is, is comprehensible, but I just couldn't comprehend the idea of Everton ending this transfer window, particularly after the sale of Anthony Gordon, which removed a key player from the squad and introduced additional funds, or so we believed it did, uh, to, to Everton's options. Yeah, the, the idea that they would end it with no new additions just just shocked me. Now, what we're doing today is, and just so it's clear, so everybody knows, like I mean, I'm speaking now on Wednesday afternoon. I've gone to the club this morning. I've made clear that they want to try and make any kind of explanation, any kind of they want to share some thoughts as to how it ended up this way, share their thinking with us. Then you know, there's a platform for him to try and explain to fans because I really really do think it is important that fans get an explanation for how Everton have ended up this transfer window weaker than it started. But while I wait for that, I'm going to go to you guys first. Paul, season ticket holder in the main stand, going there on, on Saturday for the Arsenal game. Surely you did not imagine, you know, let alone at the beginning of the window, probably not even last week, that you'd be going to that game and witnessing a squad with no extra faces. No, it's uh, yeah, it's it, it, it beggars belief, really, doesn't it? And we understand that the uh, financial restrictions that the club have been into is self-imposed, isn't it? Really, uh, through all the the money that's been wasted over the years, so it wasn't expecting us to blow a lot of money. But certainly, when the the Anthony and you kind of got that impression that money was still very tight, given the fact that it was not until the end of the window that names started to get linked, and then obviously. When Anthony Gordon went, that's when you thought, you know, the uh, we'd, we'd be actually be able to make some signings. But the problem with that is, e- even if that is the case, and again, I know we'll probably talk about questions that need to be answered. And that is the big one for me. Did we have to sell to buy in this window? And that that's if if it's, it would hurt that if that was the honest truth. But at least it'd be make a bit more understandable. But the problem with doing that, with only selling Anthony Gordon with three or four days of the transfer window left. It, it leaves you with a lot to do in such a short space of time, even if a number of the targets had been on the radar for a, for a longer period of time. And it, it's a seller's market, isn't it, at this time in, in January, really? So we were always, we were a big disadvantage anyway, but we were even, an even bigger disadvantage given the fact that, you know, we had to do this in the space of 48, 72 hours and then throw into the fact that we've got a new manager in the mix as well. It's just, I suppose when we were talking earlier, it's just... Saturday, there's the problems, even if Everton would have got two signings yesterday, the problems at the club would not have gone away. There's there's no question about that. It would have been a, a maybe not a sticking plaster, but it, it certainly would have been a little boost going into Saturday. 
Sean Dyche's first game in charge. I know before the game, there's like a peaceful protest march of, uh, against the owner and the board, but I'm pretty sure inside the ground, it would have been everyone behind the team and everyone behind the manager, which I still believe will be the case. But it, it's just, it's soured it again a little bit. What what should be a game to look forward to, a bit of a reset. I, I you know, personally, I think Dykes is a good appointment for us at the stage we're at. And really, you go in there, whereas you should be going, come on, new start. Let's see what Dykes can get out of these players and get a couple of new signings. Now you go in there thinking, God, is, is it going to be more of the same? Is it, has it got worse? It's just been a horrible couple of weeks, hasn't it? So, yeah, uh, maybe maybe we shouldn't be surprised anything that happens with Everton at the moment. But yeah, to answer your initial question, Joe, I'm like like every Evertonian, like yourself, like Connor and Gavin, pretty sure we're pretty staggered that could be going into Saturday's game with no signings. Connor, what did you go into this transfer window believing the minimum expectations for Everton to be? You know, what what do you think that they needed to sort out this window? And what did you realistically think that they would get? How far in those plans did you think that the inroads would go? I honestly thought when, when we hit January 1st, New Year's Day, Everton would end the window with two new attacking players in the squad. Purely simply because of all that we'd heard, all that we'd been led to believe, led to that thinking that you know two attacking players will come in. You know, And, and the fact that the club had, had which is, you know, never happened before, six weeks with no games to plan for this transfer window. You know, once once the full-time wasn't went to the Vitality Stadium, when was it Saturday the 12th of November, ever knew they had six, seven weeks, six and a half weeks before they returned to action. And in that time, OK, they wouldn't play friendlies and stuff, but that was the time where you thought, well, now they've got six weeks to, you know, Kevin Fellwell, Frank Lampard can meet as much as they want. They can, you know, draw a list of targets up. You know, they've got the World Cup to look at players. They've got, you know, look around who's been playing, who hasn't been playing. So I, I felt that they would end this window with two attacking options. You know, who their attacking options were going to be, you know, remain to be seen. But you think, you know, you think almost, you know, when the, the links with Alanga come out, you know, to be reported on the back end of the se- December, there was a few raised eyebrows and a few question marks. What Everton fans would they give yesterday to see Alanga <laughs> in a blue shirt, you know, and, and that's how far kinds of things transpire because... I just felt they would get two attacking plays in because, for me, I felt like everyone at the club knew the importance of getting at least two attacking plays mm-hmm. in. You know, mm-hmm. maybe a forward, maybe a winger, maybe a number ten. Everyone kind of you had that feeling that everyone understands that this has got to happen, and everyone's on the same page. And that's not always been the case at Everton. You know, we've seen ourselves firsthand. Not everyone is always on the same page, but this felt like a real kind of moment where, yeah, everyone can see what we need. Everyone knows what needs to happen, and I have you know. Maybe, maybe well, I was naive, but I have full faith that that was going to happen. You know, I certainly didn't think they'd lose Anthony Gordon as well. I don't know if we touch on that, but I didn't think they would lose a valuable squad member in terms of someone who's played regularly. I thought they may have lost maybe one of the defenders in Michael Keane or Mason Hall, given their game time. But yeah, I think from a, an incoming perspective, I certainly thought they would get the two attacking players that they'd been, you know, long craving. They, mm-hmm. they would get them in and and they would, you know, have different options moving forwards into the second half, because it's what's essentially the second half of the season. Yeah. Gav, Connor alluded there to the, the, the six weeks that were offered to Everton through the World Cup break to plan for yeah. this transfer window. Do you, a lot of fans, and, and it's hard to disagree with them, um, do you subscribe to the same belief as them that actually Everton had longer than six weeks? And really, from the minute Dominic Calvert-Lewin got injured at the beginning of, of August, it highlighted just how limited Everton's striking options were. And really, they actually had probably four months to plan to get a striker in, or at least one forward in for this window. Well, I mean, 
I think progressive clubs are looking two or three transfer windows down the line, aren't they? For the start, it's not just that those in that season, it's beyond that. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, and I, I this all, I know I spoke to you briefly this morning, Joe. I mean, to me, the whole issue, there's two couple of issues. The first issue is money, isn't it? I always said like that would be tight in January because we're not, I know we've reduced our pay bill and all that, and we sold Richarlison. That, that is still hanging over our head, financial regulations. So I always felt that um, it would be limited in January. But as you say, there was even in that context, there was, was scope for us to bring a couple of players in, just purely from a PR perspective, given, you know, just to give everybody a lift. And what what I didn't didn't expect is to bring zero players in and then haven't sold Anthony Gordon, which to me tells you two things. I think the financial aspect of it, because we're still in, I think, under under scrutiny, whatever. We're still, you know, under the FFP sort of shadow. And the second thing is to me that smacks of just smacks of what's gone on over the last few few weeks, few months. Is Evan an attractive club for people to come to? That's the elephant in the room, eh? Why would you want to come to Everton at the moment? At this specific moment in time, if you were a footballer, why would you want to come to Evan? What would think, be the attraction? I think it's like it's, it's a valid question that, that you ask. Obviously, we you know we would all be able to give you know good yeah. answers on you know the passion of the fans, the size of the club, its history, and, and what a wonderful institution it is. But I think one of the things that you kind of hone in on there is that question might be pertinent now. You talked about PR, club PR. Now, it would, of course, been a very different situation, a very different question with a different answer if you asked at the beginning of January, before Everton had, had, had carried on their slump yeah, yeah. from before the World Cup into now, before they had had the situation where, you know, protests have unfolded, the relationship between the fans and the board had disintegrated, and before you had the chaos of Frank Lampard being sacked, before you had the chaos of of, of, of everything around it and the failure to do so. It feels like, from, from, from my perspective, dealing with the club on a day-to-day basis, it feels like they, they, they constantly seem to miss... They, they constantly seem to... Either, they lack the foresight to see the optics of what doing nothing means... I think they didn't quite understand the value of getting a player lined up early in the transfer window. It's a statement of intent to prove to the fan base that they were being pro- proactive. It wasn't just empty words. Just to to got someone in on January the first was always going to be very difficult. Very few clubs managed that, and the clubs that did: Chelsea, Liverpool, obviously European football, huge sums of, of money available to them, and Wolves, who you know agreed the deal for Mateus Kuna, who Everton were interested with. But I think at that stage in the window, I think everybody accepted that committing to pay forty-five million pounds in the future for a forward who had a questionable goal-scoring record in. In, in La Liga was the type of expensive gamble that Everton needed to get away from in order to yeah. show that they were making progress. But to have not maybe had someone lined up in the days, you know, by the first or second week, it just created that vacuum of, of uns- you know, that vacuum of, of, of words, of actions, of, of, of doing anything, which just then allowed the space for things like the protests and the questions in the board to grow. Which then, in terms of that, obviously led to the situation that you get two weeks later, where you know you can legitimately ask whether or not players 
are looking at Everton yeah. and seeing the kind of attractive situation. It's a perfectly valid question to ask on the transfer deadline day, but I think and the reality is that getting to a scenario where Everton may not be a club's first choice, uh, sorry, a player's first choice to come, getting to that situation in the first place was completely avoidable. But, but yeah, I mean, maybe may not. The players they wanted in early January just weren't available. Or, I mean, I think the Danjima thing's probably thrown a few people as well, hasn't it? Um, to be fair, it's not as if like they did not have somebody lined up. They obviously did, and it was sort of 95% done. So I think that, that didn't help. Some of this, I think, Joe, comes back to cash and, and, you know, how much money is available and physical cash in the club at any given time. And, and I think, you know, I go back to this thing again, isn't it? Is yesterday wasn't just a problem of people not doing their jobs yesterday. It was the product of a several years of us being taking our eye off the ball regarding finances, hasn't it? Really going back to 2017, going back to you know what? What did they say the other week? One and every six pounds that we earn at the moment still still paying for Ancelotti, James Rodriguez, Decore, and Alan. And two of them have been out of the club for more than 18 months. It, it's, it's, it's that, isn't it? it it's, that puts us in a very weak bargaining position when we're trying to bring somebody in because we may not be able to structure the deal properly for the club. The club might want, we want to buy a play for 20 million quid. We might not have 20 million quid. They, we might say 5 million over four years. The, 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 the selling club might not, might not want that. We may not be able to offer wages. That's some of our rivals. And I'm talking about rivals here. I'm talking about the likes of Southampton and play teams like that some around, around us at the moment. So it sounds good. And, and I know you are right, but the practicalities of that in our situation are, are, are difficult, aren't they? And I, I still just think that even selling Gordon, it, it's just to try and get us back on an even keel financially. And... Um, and, and and you are right, right, and, and but that extra layer of what's happened, the chaos on and off the pitch over the last two or three weeks hasn't helped. That's the sort of whatever the opposite of cherry on the cake is. That's that's the the opposite, you know, the opposite of that. And but to me, yesterday's just the product of five or six years of not necessarily being, you know, right financially in terms of the players we brought in and the players we should have sold and didn't and. It was crystallised in a single 24 hours, wasn't it, really, for me? The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The messaging from the club throughout was always that this was going to be a, a, a difficult transfer window, that you know, they would, Everton would have to be savvy in how they operated. But Lampard was always clear as well and went on the record, and he spoke about this publicly, that he believed that Evan did have money to buy players if, if he needed. If, if, if the reality of the situation was that Everton didn't have the money to secure permanent signings or to even kind of juice the wheels for... For, for, for some loan signings. And if the reality of the situation was that even after selling Anthony Gordon for 
you know, what appears to have been £40 million up front, you know, in terms of what they, had, they, they were able to get. If Everton was still financially constrained in the market, even after securing a deal such as, you know, as, as big as that, do you think that the fans deserve to know that? Do you think that the club needs to be open and communicate that to the fans so that they can at least have an understanding as to perhaps some of the dynamics that were going on behind the scenes whilst Everton were trying to, but ultimately failed to bring anybody in? Absolutely. Uh, whether whether Everton or any club would be willing to do that, I'm not sure, sadly. But it would give us more understanding of the situation because all it's left is now, it's just so many questions that people want answers to, really, and which only the club can provide. And I know the club could argue that in the space of the last few weeks, they've had a video interview with Farhad Mashiri, there's been an open letter on the website, you know, obviously his infamous Jim White interview. So he has been readily available of the owner and, you know, compared to a lot of other owners in the Premier League, he's probably done, done, done his first share there. But the problem that supporters have at the moment is that the words don't help hold value because there is that feeling when you watch him, he's very calm. And but what you were saying earlier about the club, maybe they didn't grasp the enormity of getting a signing in in terms of the mood. It, the feeling from the outside, because we don't, we may get communication, but we don't get the real truth. It feels is that everything's going to be okay, but we can see this iceberg coming. And it's like Gav said, you know, it's it's not. Yeah, you know what? Everton will not be the first club to have a disastrous transfer window. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's happened to other clubs over the years, but it's not just a one-off. This has been coming for four or five years. The chickens are truly coming home to roost now, and it's it, it can't be a coincidence that. Every week seems to be bringing a different crisis. You know, it, you run the club like we've run it in the last four or five years, or basically for the large majority of Farmer's time in charge of the club. It will, it will come back to bite you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can they say that? I don't know. Would I hope you could say that? Definitely, because it, the only way we're going to stay up now as a club is by Sean Dyche probably proving what he proves at Burnley. You know, he's been in not dissimilar situations to this, where he's had players sold from, from underneath his feet. He's had very little money to work with. We've got to hope he is as good as manager as, as a lot as hope hope he is in this kind of situation. And we need the fans on side. And at the moment, because there's all these questions that are still to be answered, it doesn't feel very unified. And like last season, more, more now more than ever, we need, we need to be unified. We need to have that fight to get over this line because it's going to be really hard anyway because... I, I think the squad is probably one of the, the, the poorest in the Premier League. And as we mentioned earlier, every team down there around us in the table have strengthened. You know, it's going to take a superhuman effort to, to stay up. And it's absolute paramount because if we think the finances are bad now, God knows what it's going to be like in the Premier League, in the, in the Championship with this huge stadium development still to be paid for, you know, is it 500 million? Is it 700 million? We're not sure. Again, that's another question that needs to be answered. But whatever it is, it's a huge financial commitment. And, you know, it's, it, fans are worried. You know, if anyone tries to pin the blame on fans at the moment, it's com it, it's completely out of order. Fans are concerned about the situation. And what happened yesterday on transfer deadline day, uh, deadline day sorry, it's just it's heightened it even more because what Gab's right, I think, We've got to this situation because of what's happened over the years, but it's just, again, you know, <laughs> is this going to is this is this the way it's going to be? We just not got the money now, you know. Every signing is that Gordon money just swallowed up for this year's accounts in the summer to start again? Do we have to sell someone else? 
I don't know. It's just, yeah, Joe, if, if I think you were right at the start as well, Joe, I think a lot of flack at the moment will probably rest on Kevin Fowler's shoulders because he's the, you know, the director of football, but it could be, could be for reasons for beyond his control. And I think for the club's point of view, I don't think they've played PR very well at all lately, but I think some real honesty now could help understand the situation. I don't think it had, uh, you know, I don't think it at ease a lot of the anger and a lot of the worries, but come on, we, we need to know a bit more. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. One of the things that Paul mentioned there, Connor, was the the interview that, that Farhad Mashiri did with the Fan Advisory Board. Obviously, that came out you know, probably about 10 days ago, so just over halfway through the, the transfer window. In that interview, Mr Mashiri was quite clear that if the club needed a striker, the club would find one. They would bring one in during this transfer window. And obviously, they haven't done so. I mean... It's a bit of a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think that fans are fans can accept to a certain degree that Everton are under significant financial constraints, but surely it's not surely it's not irresponsible or unfair of fans to start to get their hopes up that the problems of the squad will be addressed when f- not just at the beginning of the window you have Frank Lampard suggesting that there's a plan in place and that you know there are options there and there are is a little bit of money available. But even if after his departure, the owner of the club is reiterating that the club is in a position to at least try to address some of its biggest shortfalls, I mean, that only makes things worse, doesn't it? I mean, fans have every right to feel let down, don't they? Yeah, they, they do have every right to feel let down because quite ultimately they have been let down by, by what's transpired. Um, I just wondered about that interview. Obviously, that was filmed the Thursday before West Ham, wasn't it? And the Thursday before Frank Lampard ultimately lost his job. And I just wonder whether that Farhad Mashiri done that interview and spoke so confidently because he knew then that the club were closing on Dan Juma. Because obviously, you know, we all know the next day it emerged that Everton effectively won the race in terms of the first race involving <laughs> themselves and Bournemouth and a few others for Dan Juma's signature. So I don't know whether he was maybe sat there speaking confidently because he knew that Dan Juma was close to coming in. Um, but even so, you know, even if that, you know, the way things transpired in that one, the club still had ample time to go and bring a forward into the football club. You know, it wasn't like Dan Juma led them down the garden path for 10 days and then transfer deadline, they got in his car and went to Tottenham and never come back and, and left them high and dry in that respect. You know, that was still, they still probably a week, pretty much a week on, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. To, to, to bring in a centre forward. You know, seven days is a long, long time in football. And, you know, they must have surely had other targets drawn up because, like we've already alluded to in this podcast, the hope was that they would have been two attacking players in. So that's only one. So where was the other one? You know, mm-hmm. was it just at that point that they were just going to bring in Dan Juma and, and that was it? So, yeah, I, I think fans have got every right to feel let down with the way things have gone. And ultimately as well, you know, Paul makes a great point in well, the chickens are coming coming home to roost. And that's one of the big issues, isn't it? Because it feels like now a lot of the, this, this, the concern that fans have has come to be true. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of, you know, December when people talk about the transfer window and everyone, there's a few fans out there who maybe a little bit sceptical that they wouldn't the club wouldn't conduct business and, and others would be like, no, 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 I think it'll be different this time round. I think, you know, everyone seems to be in agreement and and then people who, you know, who were concerned were probably right to be concerned because what's transpired is the squad's in a, in a, not even in the same position, the mm-hmm. weaker position than what it was. So, yeah, I think I think one of the issues though as well, you know, talking about Farham and Shady's interviews in, in themselves is, you know, people aren't convinced by what he's got to say anymore, are they? And I think that's another issue that the club have got on a wider scale is that, you know, when a football club's owner speaks, Everyone listens, but a lot of the time, people listen and then come away with the caveat of, 
expect the opposite. You know, you look back at Frank Lampard, you know, Farha went on talk sports, spoke openly and lonely about Frank Lampard, he was going to stick by him. Was it 12 days later, 10 days later, he was, he was sacked, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we were led to believe that was a firm, machinery led decision. So, you know, <laughs> it's, recent evidence suggests that you, you take everything what he's got to say with a pinch of salt because the two things he has been quite clear on this month, you know, the complete opposite ends up happening. We also have, I suppose, when you think of the one thing that the club has heralded for most of the past years, the strategic review, the apparent cultural reset and... Yeah, you know, the idea that every big decision that would be made would be made, you know, in conjunction with all the big players in in at the top of the Everton hierarchy, and and yet, whilst obviously I, I think we have to allow for for the fact that some of this is just coming from, you know, from journalists and agents that are you know closer to things that were going on, but very much felt like Bielsa was Mashiri's choice, mm. and the only reason that he didn't get the job was probably because he talked himself out of it. Yeah not you know with some of his demands and some of his ideas rather than it being a uniform choice saying no dice is the better man from this situation than, than marcel bielsa oh 100 and i think you know we saw that quite evidently <clears throat> with the, the statement that was put out when they eventually confirmed sean dice's appointment as manager you know bill Kerrick was the pace from the board commenting on the appointments and it was quite telling that it was the last few words that far i got to mention you know <laughs> and, and even that was like and far degrees too you know it wasn't it wasn't the most kind of Endor- glowing endorsement of, of statements was it for Sean Dyche? But yeah, I think that that's right. Is anything far as you know, if he'd have had his way, he'd have had Marcel be also mm-hmm. in charge of the football club. The only thing that is perhaps surprised some people is that you know, far didn't buy into be also wanting to punish doing the 21s because you know, I think that maybe would have took the decision making to the whole new level. But yeah, I think that's another big thing, isn't it? I think this, this, this strategic review in itself has left a lot of questions because you know, the collegiate approach and, and, and stuff like that, you know. How quite a, a, a manager shortlist ends up with Sean Dyche and Marcelo Bielsa in itself raises questions, doesn't it? Because both, you know, really good managers in their own right and, and, and done a lot in the game, but both got contrasting styles, contrasting ways of playing, you know, contrasting ways to operate. You almost can't get any two managers who are mm. further apart on the scale than, than Sean Dyche and Marcelo Bielsa. And yet, you know, after everything that Everton have done over the last year or so in the strategic review and the way they want to conduct business, they stand up with them two people on, on the list. So I think in, in general, this has just been a a, a, a a comedy of errors, hasn't it? Because I think a lot of the good work and the goodwill that we, you know, the club kind of portrayed and, and what we'd all wanted to buy into has just been completely undone because, mm. you know, there's no evidence to suggest that any of what they said was going to happen moving forward has actually happened and is, 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 and is happening at this moment in time. Gav, you, you like each of us will be at Goodison Park for, for the Arsenal game on Saturday. Now, I mean, Connor mentions goodwill there. To what extent do you think that the the failures of the final days of the transfer window have perhaps removed some of the goodwill that would have been there from the appointment of Sean Dyche and the, the idea that at least Everton had perhaps made a sensible decision and there was a new manager that the fans could get behind? Um, I don't think it'll lose the goodwill to Dice. I think it'd actually strengthen the the Dice's hands early this in some respects, won't it? Both with, with the fans and um with the media, I think because obviously he's got no new players to work with. So this in a strange way it's I won't say it's beneficial for him, I wouldn't say that because he's got no new players, but it's in terms of his, the way we look at his performance, we're looking at it in a slightly different light now, aren't we? Because he's not being given any new players. So I think goodwill to Dice, goodwill towards the club, 
I'm not. I'm not. I'm, is anybody? I've got any goodwill to the club at the moment? I'm not sure whether that's the right way. Maybe that they've got this right in terms of yeah, getting that the dice appointments, making that something that was sensible uh, and logical. Yeah. Does does this this tarnish that? I'm not so sure. I think the two different things. To be honest with you, Joe. I, I, but I do think it. If anything, it's it strengthens the bond between Dice and the fans. Mm. I think because they 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 they'll see Dice as the only one who can source it now. Don't, don't they really within the club? So I think it that helps. Um, and and and. It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see the atmosphere on on Saturday. I think it might be. I think it might be hot in a positive way, actually. But just just one other point, by the way, going back about the early business in January, is I think the fact that Lampard's future was under scrutiny maybe stopped them doing business in early January. By the way, I think that that's another thing. After the Brighton game, yeah, yeah, yeah. That change in manager in January means that you're not going to buy players in the first week or two of January because you might sack the manager seven days later and look a bit foolish. Hmm. And, and I think that definitely came into the which you said at the start of the month, didn't we? That's going to be an issue when we were talking about Lampard's future, what we do in the central window. And I think that probably stopped us from dipping our toes in the, in the water. With that being the case, do you think that Everton would have been in a would have finished his transfer window stronger had they made the decision to get rid of Lampard earlier. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's what he said. That's what I said tonight. You need to get rid of your manager at the end of December or January and get somebody in, and then that gives you the whole of January to buy players or look at players, hmm. uh, or even flag up stuff people might want to buy in the summer. You know, gives you that opportunity, or keep Lampard in the job. You know, until whenever after the January transfer window, what you can't do is is have the worst of both worlds, where you get rid of your manager halfway through, and you then you know lessen your chances of getting players in as a consequence, which is exactly what's happened, hasn't it, really? And well, yeah, they, you, they've, you know, you got the perfect exhibit, haven't you? Because they've kept him long enough for him to woo Dan Juma to Merseyside, but got rid of him too early for them to actually conclude the deal. <laughs> So. Yeah, right. So this, 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 this the thing, isn't it? And and, and on Monday we're saying the six week break didn't do anybody any favors, did it? And you know, in the club. And uh, but I, I think the whole Lampard future has has meant that we've probably not been able to do business as well. To be honest with you, yesterday. So um, there's a. I was going to say there's a lesson learned there, but it was the same last year, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> To a degree, no, but that, that that hasn't helped as a change of manager. But I, I think going back to the initial question is, I think the goodwill towards Dice off the fans will be even greater on Saturday than even it would possibly to be, possible to be when he was appointed. Because I think I think they'll hopefully we'll all feel and they'll feel a connection with him now that he's a little bit of an underdog. He's had a little bit of a raw deal and a transfer window. Let's get behind him. I mean, with that being the case, it's going to be fascinating to see how he, he plays his first press conference because for all our you know demands and our desires for answers from the club as to how this transfer window has unfolded in the manner that it has, the reality is that Sean Dyche is probably going to be the first 
club first person from the club of any profile to front public questions on how this transfer win- window has unfolded. Yeah, we're recording this on the Wednesday, and it's at Thursday lunchtime that, that Sean Dyche's press conference, his first press conference as ever manager will be. Paul, how do you expect him to play that? I mean, do you think he's likely to, to, to play on that situation to almost help to try and, you know, use it as a as a bridge to build a relationship with the fans? I mean, he's pretty wily, isn't he? As I say, mm. he's, he may never have been at a club the size of Everton before as a player, uh, as a manager. You know, he was a, a player under Brian Clough. He's been around the bush, uh, Sean Dykes. I think he'll deal with it absolutely fine. And really similar to what Gav says, he's almost in a no-lose situation here, isn't he? Obviously, if Everton go down, it's disastrous. But I think from the outside world, people will go, well, what hope do they have? You know, with six or seven of your relegation rivals signing four, five, six, seven players for big money, number of clubs breaking the club records. Uh, and not only have you failed to add to your squad, you've actually weakened it. And, you know, if 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 Sean Dyke's preferred formation, which it certainly was at Burnley's 4-4-2, we're asking him to go into these, what is it, final 18 games of the season with three forwards, one who is top class on his day, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, but sadly his injuries have hampered the amount of times we see that. Neil Mopai who scored one goal and Alisson who's hardly playing the Premier League. He plays with two wide players and currently we've got two wide players on the books in McNeil and Gray. Well, we could possibly play there, but certainly remember the times he played wide for Carlo Ancelotti and he's probably his crossings, not one of his best attributes. Andros Townsend, we're asking a lot for him to come back after such a serious injury. So he's really been hamstrung. He's, he's been left you know, he's been left to hang out to dry air dates, really, by not getting... And I know there's talk of IU today, but the fact that it sounds like there's other Premier League clubs in, and as Gas said at the moment, you know, if, if if there's a Palace or a Forest who are also in for IU, there's no guarantee it will come to Everton because it's not an attractive proposition at the moment. So Deitch is already working with one hand tied behind his back. Uh, but yeah, that, that might work in his favour. It's probably cliches, but it is that siege mentality. That's the way you'd hope he'd play it, you know, this is what we've got now. There's good players in the squad. Like you said in his initial interview, there are good players in the squad. It's up to me to get the best out of them. I'm going to need the fans on side. Because that, as I said earlier, is the only way Everton will survive this season. It's by building a team that works really hard on the pitch. is a, a, a lot more organised and a lot more well set up than sadly what Frank Lampard could do and getting the fans on side. And it will be, it'll be an us and them. You know, from sadly, as sad as it is, there's no unified nature between the fans and the team and the board. It will be fans and team and then board on the other side. But that is the that that's the way Dyke's just got to play it. I think he's clever enough to not come out in his press conference tomorrow and go, yeah, I've been let down because, you know, he's just starting the job and he will be getting paid handsomely. <laughs> and you know what? If he keeps us up, he may he may well get a handsome pay bonus. And if that's the case, he'll deserve every penny because as you say, it was a tough job when he was appointed and it's an even tougher job now. But yeah, I'm, I'm very much like like Gav, really, I think, in a strange way, it, it could work in his favour uh, because everyone can see now that these are the this is the hand he's being dealt, and it's not a good one. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Mister Andrew, Andrew, um, are you there? He's also someone that throughout transfer deadline day, the club repeatedly dismissed links with. So, I mean, that they. If the interest now post transfer window is is as serious as some outlets are suggesting, then again it only kind of gives further evidence to the you know, the the difficulties that Everton's been having and perhaps their scattergun approach to this. Connor, 
you know, much of the focus has been on incomings or the lack of incomings, but this is also a month in which we were expected to see a number of outgoings from the first team squad. Now, there were a significant number of players that you felt would move to the fringes of, 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 of the first team under Frank Lampard. Are you, you know, they will now get the opportunity, a fresh opportunity, you would imagine, under under Sean Dyche. Michael Keane in particular, someone who, who clearly wasn't trusted or fancied by Lampard to do a job in Everton's defence is, is someone that, that Sean Dyche has worked with and perhaps had some of his better, better years under that manager. I mean... Are you are you grateful in some respects that because of the lack of incomes at the end of the transfer window that there weren't more outgoings in the middle of the transfer window? So at least there's a bit more of a stronger squad to come from. Uh, and either way, who do you think might surprise us and and emerge under Daesh as a you know as, a, as, a, as someone that can have an impact? I think that the squad question is, is is a tough one, isn't it? Because there was even that feeling during the window when the links, you know, Decore was linked to Fulham, wasn't he? Michael Keane was into a couple of clubs, Holgate, I think, was linked with Southampton at one point. That you felt Everton kind of needed to get people in, to get people out, even mm-hmm. even at that early stage, because the squad isn't massive. When you look at, you know, there's been a few games this season where the kids have propped the bench up, essentially, you know, to, to, to get to the maximum number of subs. So there was always that feeling that the squad needs adding two before people went out. I think now on reflection, you know, I think, well, yeah, probably is good that they kept some of the players in the rounds, um, because obviously... You know, some of them players will you suspect being given a boost by Frank Lampard's mm-hmm. dismissal, um, because you know they haven't. You, know, you think of people like Decore and you know use their Michael Keane and Holt, Mason Holgate, who very much found themselves on the fringes. Then I think they've built a clean state and they've got a chance to to stake a claim moving forward. I think in terms of the second part of the question, the big one for me is you, you've got to hope Frank McNeil can can recapture some type of form because, you know, I haven't spent a lot of money on him in the summer. Mm. You know, he's someone who's worked with Sean Dyche previously, so you're hoping there that that, that connection can kind of make things, you know, show a little bit more promise because, you know, like Paul alluded to there, you know, he's one of only two wingers at the football club, natural wingers at the football club right now. So if Sean Dyche is going to play 4-4-2, which we suspect he will, Everton need their two wingers, you know, fire on all cylinders because they're going to play a crucial role in terms of defensive output and attacking certainly an attacking output so he's the one for me who you hope Sean Dyche coming in and someone he knows who worked with obviously the coaching staff mm-hmm. who come in from Burnley you know you'll know all them as well that he can get some sort of confidence because he's clear isn't it I mean we've we've all seen him play over the last couple of weeks I think the poor lad is massively lacking in confidence I think every ounce of positive confidence and energy is being drained out of him um, so he's the one for me who you have to hope you have to pray, you know, recapture some type of form and is able to kind of show signs of why Everton spent the money they did on him in the summer because obviously at the moment, like him and him and Neil Morpe, they both look like very expensive mistakes because they've offered very little in terms of output. And when, you know, like we've alluded to, when money is tight, when, when transfers have been carefully negotiated and stuff like that, you can't afford to be carrying any passengers. And at the minute, Dwight McNeil's a passenger Everton are carrying and can't afford to do so moving forward. It's really interesting as well because obviously in the aftermath of this transfer window and the way it's unfolded that we're starting to see a bit more attention turn on to the role of Kevin Farwell, the director mm. of football in, and, and where he sits in all this. I mean, personally, you know, I speak to a lot of people that are involved in the footballing world and, and, and nobody has a bad word to say about him, both on a personal level and on a professional level. And this might be going on a limb to say this slightly, but I just can't help but look at this transfer window and think that Surely, for it to have ended this way, it must be through factors outside of his control. Mm-hmm. 
um, because you know the reputation that he's got uh, and the history that he's got at places like Wolves. You know, it just seems incomprehensible that if he'd have been left to his own devices and been given the support that he he needs and deserves, mm. that Everton would be in this situation. I mean, do, do you think that's a, a fair read of that, of that, or do you think that actually you get into a position now where you know he might start to lose some of the, he might deserve to lose some of the benefit of the doubt? I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? I think you know, I remember when he, he first got appointed to the role, you know, last year's last March time, I think it might have been. And uh, you know, talked to an agent who, who I know, and, and he said, you know, shrewd operator, one of the best in the business. Mm. That they were the way he, he told me that about him, and you know, said a lot of other positive things. And and you know, I'm sure you know, like you know, that's similar to what you know you've heard as well. You know, a lot of people do speak positively of him, and uh, it's almost a, a bit of a bad one with Kevin Fell because the people outside of the kind of Everton bubble are a little bit perplexed at why it's the way it is. They mm. don't don't quite understand why with someone like Kevin Fell at the helm why it's kind of transpired things have transpired the way they have because you know they don't kind of see that happening under his watch um but i think now given given certainly what looks like a lack of planning and a lack of kind of forthright you know having a structure mm. is, is almost putting him under pressure because i think fans are kind of out there saying well why didn't we have a list of targets drawn up you know was it only dan juma this month you know yeah. you know why wasn't there other players you know how much of a role did he play in the manager search you know how much of an input did he have on whether Frank Lampard should keep his job or be sacked after just like Brighton and stuff like that? So I think I think ultimately I think we're in a position where it's a little bit of both now, but I still think there's there's certain elements of goodwill towards Kevin Fell because just because like I say, the sheer amount that you, you hear and, and we have heard about how good he is at his job, how much of a top operator he is, why people are so perplexed at how things have worked out does make you think that there's got to be something else behind the scenes. Mm. And, and essentially as well, you know, we're also looking at this from the perspective of he's Everton's third director of football under Farhad Mashiri. And he's essentially the third director of football who is struggling mm. a little mm. bit. You know, this isn't a one-off. You know, this isn't kind of, he's the first one to struggle, the first one to struggle to get deals in. The first one maybe to perhaps not have his voice heard in the way he probably expects and, and wants his voice to be heard. Obviously, you know, Marcel Brand's, is the main one who's been you know, incredibly critical of kind of certain appointments and certain transfers of Everton when he was there that he quite simply wasn't getting listened to. You now starting to think is Kevin Felwell, you know, also banging his head against mm. the, the same wall that Marcel Brand was banging his against because like I say, something somewhere just doesn't sit right in all this. Something in the cog has gone massively wrong in, in the wheel because like I say, you can't have everything that you know spoken about in the build up. You know, even Frank Lampard himself, I remember, you know, I think it was December time, he done a sit down with the club's own in-house media team, and he actually said, Yes, we need help in January. We mm. are looking at ringing it. That was the club's own in-house media team in an interview that the club put out. He openly admitted that they need help. So you don't you struggle to wonder how they got to the position they digested where you get to four or five o'clock and they're scraping around what looked like Europe and they were being offered every man and his dog. By agents who were desperate to get moves to clients because they knew Everton was probably a bit of a dumping ground because they knew Everton that Everton were desperate. Mm. So yeah, you just can't help but think somewhere something's gone wrong. And Kevin Felwell, unfortunately, is bearing the brunt of of the frustration of where that's gone wrong. So yeah, I think I think he will start to lose a little bit of goodwill because I think fans are growing a little bit impatient. I think fans expected signers and they didn't get them. But I also think we need to be mindful that we've seen this before at Everton mm. and this isn't the first time. Adaptive footballers perhaps struggle to do the job by himself and, and in the way he wants things he wants to do. So I think it's a little bit of both right now this minute, but I was certainly on the caution of throwing all the blame 
Oh, and this is after January at the, the door of Kevin Falwell. Yeah, they feel like wise words, though, do, they do Connor. I think, um, you know, when you look at some of the changes he's made at Finch Farm, and, you know, I know these are the ideas for them to have a long term impact, and that progress doesn't really matter if Everton end up in the relegate, get, getting relegated mm. this season. But a lot of what we know that Falwell has done behind the scenes makes sense. And, and Lampard was very clear, you know, when I spoke to him in Australia back in November, that there was already a list of targets drawn up there. And I think that's almost one of the things that's so worrying, isn't it? The fact that there was such a clear and open acceptance from within the club that they knew what was needed. Mm. And the fact that they've managed to not do that, not achieve those relatively straightforward goals is something that's of concern because something's gone on, gone wrong along the lines. And yes, we know there are, you know, mitigating factors and unusual circumstances, such as you know, obviously the results didn't go as planned. You know, there was the uncertainty before his depart- eventual departure of Lampard. There was the manager search. There was the the U-turn of of Dan Juma, and there's obviously the questions over the finances. But one of the reasons that yesterday came across so badly, one of the reasons why the the, the fair to business is so staggering, is simply because the club through so many different people in so many different ways were saying we can do bit we know what business needs to be done and we think we can do it and they were telling that all the way up until you know the end of the transfer window all the way up until Mashiri comes out in a video and says we will get a striker because we need one so something's clearly not added up there is it I, I, mm-hmm. I don't you know I, I don't think so so Gav what we've seen you know from Everton we you know we know we, we've all had a sleepless night trying to probably work out how on earth that's happened and having been the only club in the Premier League to not bring an income yeah. in it during this window. I mean, Everton's inactivity is even more stark when you compare it to the rivals for the relegation battle that's likely to unfold, isn't it? I think Bournemouth, um, Bournemouth and Southampton look like they've spent £50 million plus. Wolves, yeah. you know, if you include the Kuna deal, have committed to more than £50 million. West Ham been less, you know, less busy, but obviously they spent 150 odd million pounds in the summer and brought Danny Ings in during this uh, window. Forrest spent 150 odd million pounds in, in, in the summer and then secured more signings during, during this window. We know that Everton were in a difficult scenario already because the league table just tells us that and we've been able to see it with our own eyes. You know, the 10 winless games, the four consecutive home defeats at, at Goodison Park. But just... Just how difficult do you think the club's fight for survival is is is, is now? Um, well, obviously, I was going to say a lot more difficult now than January, but uh, beginning of January we changed the manager, haven't we? So, well, it, it's it's enormously difficult. Um, what you've got to play for here is is that you, there's, there's two things, isn't it? Really, there's trust in dice. And his experience and his management skills. As I said on Monday, it's a different job to Jip Burnley when he went there. He's, 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 he's managing a different type of player than what he's managed previously. Going back to what Paul was saying about size of clubs. So therefore, that's a challenge for him. We trust him with his experience to be to, to, to be able to overcome that challenge. That's the first thing. And the other side of the coin is what I always say, it's about the players. It's about the players to respond to that. And, and I've said this every pod for about like the last four weeks. 
in some respects, January doesn't really matter to me because all, all the rest of the season is about getting the best out of the 18 or 19 players that they've got there. And because if, if Dice is not able to do that, we could have bought, I don't know, Messi and Ronaldo in maybe not Ronaldo would have given this way, actually. Would have bought Messi in, in January, it wouldn't have mattered because the 18 and 19 players in the rest of the squad aren't operating effectively. So it, it's it's a, it, it's down to the players and the manager, as it should always be in football. So, um, and that's going to get us out. If they they do the jobs properly, then we've got a, a very good chance of getting out of it, of, of the mess we're in, um, for me. It, and, but the players have got a hell of a lot of previous though, haven't they? Joe and, and that's that's the that's the big risk here. About Thelwell, by the way, utmost sympathy for him. He is, he is to coin a phrase from a former manager financially, you know, taking a, a knife to a gunfight, isn't he? When you talk about some of the amounts that Southampton and Bournemouth have, have, have spent and, and Wolves. And that's the missing cog for me. That's what's not working. He hasn't got the money. Yeah. And and that that's that's and so he's got a lot of sympathy for me. I don't think if if it's not worth in January, I don't think it'll be down to Kevin Powell. It'll be down to money. Uh, and, and not being having the right budget to work with effectively and swiftly. But yeah, I, I still think we make it work. We're in a difficult position. But that means Dice to be able to be up to the challenge, a challenge he's not had before, and the players to respond to that. Um, but I, I think Dice has got, he's got clout about him, hasn't he? I like Dice. Somebody said during the week that, it is actually a bit overdue appointment at Everton. He might have been a good appointment for us three years ago. Dice, to be honest with you. Um, so I, I, I am confident, and he's not. He hasn't got a stronger hand as what he's got today, Dice. To be honest with you. So um, it's not okay. It didn't work yesterday, but it's not a disaster. It's just a culmination of five or six years of us not really as a club operating effectively. Not a disaster feels about as, as as positive as I think we're going to get about the uh, <laughs> yeah, this sure. race at the minute. Sure. So I think that, that, that might be a good place to end it before we all end up um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> struggling to yeah. finish this podcast. Obviously, we'll be back again on Friday ahead of Everton's game to preview Everton's game with, with Arsenal and everything that's going to come with that. I mean, that game was already going to be a bit of a circus because you you, you have the peaceful protest that's planned against the wider management of the board. We have the questions about whether the directors are going to attend the game or not. Obviously, they didn't attend the Southampton game, the last home game, uh, because the club claimed that there was a security advice warning them that they should not attend. Uh, now you throw in a new manager, you throw in top of the table, Arsenal, who, of course, witnessed a protest against the running of the club last time they, they, they attended Goodison Park. Well, keep our fingers crossed we get the same outcome. I think we'd take another Damari Gray uh, Stormer, wouldn't we, in the late on? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we, de- we definitely would. We'd we probably take a tomorrow very soon as a rescue point, <laughs> as we said here right now. Absolutely. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for joining us. We hope you have a, as good a week as you possibly can, given how Everton have started it for you. But hopefully we can pick you up on Friday before the big game on Saturday. Thanks very much for joining us. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.